This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Future Proof by Stephen McAlpine. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian writer and speaker who specializes in cultural engagement and the church. His new book, Future Proof, is now available. McAlpine encourages readers that we have been given everything we need in Christ to thrive in a post-Christian cultural landscape. Visit thegoodbook.com future to find this book and other resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way and use code FUTURE at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash future. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Southern Seminary, training pastors, missionaries, and leaders for gospel service to the ends of the earth. Learn more at sbts.edu. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. On today's podcast, John Nielsen, Cameron Cole, and Corey Porter discuss the strengths millennials bring to the church. So, so we have the stereotypes of millennials, of course, that we've all heard, which is, I'm 35 years old, and I'm actually on the... I think the the older tip of what it means to be a millennial, and yet even I resonate sometimes with some of the negative stereotypes that you get. Um, And, you know, laziness maybe is one stereotype, maybe a kind of sense of um, overly optimistic view of the world. Um, probably an inflated view. Sometimes we would accuse millennials of having of how they're going to change the world, um, and that can definitely creep into the church. Where I think the older generations, and I'll even include myself in that, can develop a little bit of a cynical view yeah. toward millennials. Um, I think we we've seen that. In fact, Cameron was was saying just a minute ago he's even said some things in a recorded way, kind of <laughs> poking fun at millennials in a Whoops. fun way. Um, but but we do want to also think about pushing back on those stereotypes and also thinking about what these people can add to our church context. So, right, and you know I think millennials have been in some ways kind of like a punching bag or a punchline for people. Everyone likes to make fun of the snowflakes and and all of that. Um, but you know, they're, they're made in the image of God and, and they, I think a lot of the frustrations that people have with millennials, um, in some ways is because they cut against and disrupt a lot of our, our mm-hmm. cultural idols. Mm-hmm. You know, for, so for example, I think one thing I hear about millennials quite a bit is that they're lazy. They don't have a work ethic. They don't want to pay their dues. They want to rise to the top immediately. And, you know, one thing I, I will say is it, it does seem like a lot of millennials, um, they have a little better work-life balance. They value, they may value f- uh, family and friendships mm-hmm. and community and relationships more than they value vocation. And I, I think a lot of the time, why uh, 
they kind of rub people the wrong ways because that that is a little that undermines some of our yeah. our culture values. So, I mean, I was raised in a traditional house where uh, you know you said yes, sir. You said no, ma'am. You had to have a summer job, and the the family motto was while other people are sleeping, we are working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so you know to see a generation of people who may not buy into that, you know, th- there was a, a workaholic kind of idolatry in the community I grew up in, the culture I grew up in, and in my family in particular. And so I, th- I think a lot of maybe the resentment or the backlash may at times just be a reflection of our um, cultural idols related to work that millennials don't necessarily worship, don't necessarily buy into. They're not necessarily lazy. I think that they're just disenchanted with work in and of itself because it may seem aimless or pointless. And so I think that they're trying to lead more with their hearts and actually want to do something with purpose. And so they're jumping from job to job. They're looking for purpose and they don't find it. But they are the least church generation, and we know they don't have the gospel to anchor them, to hold them fast, to understanding what it looks like to do work and do work well. And so I think laziness is more of a symptomatic sense of a sin struggle that they have, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily just a characteristic of mm-hmm. the generation mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. And, and sorry, back to the idolatry thing. I, I think a lot of times older generations value security. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, something positive is the millennials, uh, millennials, they want to find fulfillment in their work. They want it to be meaningful. Uh, and they will take that over the financial security that sticking with the job may over periods, uh, over a long period of time. So, and if, and if we feel threatened by that, uh, that attitude, which we feel like is an attack on our, high value of hard work or workaholic nature, I think it's fair to ask ourselves, why exactly do we feel threatened by that? Mm -hmm. And what cultural idols might we have been worshiping that the millennials are beginning to challenge a little bit? Um, In terms of what millennials bring to the local church, um, I do want to push back on one stereotype a little bit, and that is that um, millennials don't want to hear from the older generation or that you know they, they are pushing out people who are older. In my experience, and I'm speaking anecdotally here a little bit, um, I have never met a uh, young man or woman in their 20s who isn't interested when asked in a mentoring relationship oh. with an older believer. Um, I think we have um, sold them a little bit short in terms of their desire to learn from the older generation. Um, we've assumed that they're not in, that a 25-year-old single woman, for example, is not interested in meeting regularly with a 75-year-old saint. Yeah, that's and um, in, in my experience, it's just not true. I think the opportunities are not there, and I think we have an opportunity in the local church for that Titus II kind of older women teaching the younger women about the faith, older men mentoring younger men. Um, that I, I don't think we've given millennials enough credit for actually desiring those kinds of mentoring and discipleship. John, you're on to something. When I was doing campus ministry and I was in a local church setting, the thing that I had the hardest thing of happening when, in discipleship was getting the older women to feel mm-hmm. as though they had something of value to give to the younger women. It wasn't that the younger women didn't want the mentorship themselves. It was that the older generation felt as though they may not be equipped themselves to be able to impart really any type of wisdom to the younger generation. Yeah. And so I think the onus is not necessarily on the millennial in that case. I think it is that the older women of the church should be a little bit more intentional about us taking hold of that Titus II uh, charge that is given to us to love women well through discipling them yep. in the Word. Yep. I think, you know, previous generations uh, in the United States have uh, identified themselves in terms of competency. So if you're talking about a younger kid, you know, I'm a math student or I'm a cheerleader or I'm a football player, 
millennials identify themselves in terms of connectedness and community. And so one thing that they bring to the church is a, a high value for community. The churches in, in my community that are doing well with millennials are churches that do community really, really well. And so in that sense, that that's a, a positive aspect of their ecclesiology. They don't, they don't see the church as, or they, they a lot of times see the church um, as a place where they find community, and, and that's that's something we can really embrace and learn from. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I, I do think that connects to another point that I've made and thought about sometimes about millennials is that they are the generation, in my experience, that has the um, the sharpest radar for detecting a lack of authenticity. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you want to turn off a 26-year-old young man from your church— be fake, yeah, and you'll do right it. Right on, yeah. Um, and so I do think what millennials can sometimes bring, and this happens in community. It doesn't happen without community. Is um, encouraging our churches to be authentic places, mm-hmm. um, uh, encouraging our churches to be places where sin is confessed mm-hmm. to God, but also to each other, uh, where there's real conversation and acknowledgement of the ways that we struggle, but also the ways that God is um, helping shape us to be more like Christ. Um, so, so a lot of times, if we've got that gap in our local churches where we don't have anybody in their 20s or early 30s, um, we can descend into some of that lack of authenticity, which is such a turnoff to, to young adults, I think. That's, uh, yeah, and that way they really, in some ways, hold us accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one thing I would say that's valuable about millennials is, you know, over the last 100 to 150 years uh, in evangelical Christianity, there's been a blind spot when it comes to taking care of the poor, matters related to social justice and, and racial justice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, millennials, they are, they are not going to play ball um, with that. The millennials, they want to see a, a holistic kind of ministry where uh, we're not just concerned about discipleship, but in addition to that, we are being faithful to what the scriptures have to say about taking care of the poor and being advocates for justice. And so, um, you know, and you, that's a that's a, a real trend that you see that even uh, millennials in the evangelical context that something that they are really calling for and demanding, and and it's a, it's an area where the church is needed to grow, uh, and that's something that they really uh, bring to the table a passion for that and a sense of accountability that we are faithful to all of what the scriptures have to say about those issues. Yeah. Cameron, it seems like if we brought those two together, if we brought the energy that the millennial brings, the passion, the desire to see justice, and we brought that under the authority, like you said, of the local church who is not necessarily carrying that out right now. It just seems like that we can see see Christ be more glorified uh, when it comes to issues of injustice in the world. So it doesn't seem like, to your point, something that um, should be divorced from each other, but something that should be married more together. Absolutely. And you see that millennials really do seem to have a vision for that, that the two are married together, like you said. Yeah, I'm curious, Corey, as you know, so you're discipling a ton of women. I saw you do it in person, you know, for a year when we worked together at Princeton. So you've got I don't know, dozens of 20, 21, 22-year-old women that are about to leave Princeton and go literally all over the country and all over the world. As you think about them going into local churches in New York City and Austin, Texas, and who knows, other parts of the world, what are you most excited about what they'll bring from their time at Princeton, from walking with Jesus at Princeton University? 
to their local church context in the years to come. Yeah, I don't know if you know Cameron, but John was my boss at Princeton. I do know that. Um, so <laughs> you also kind of saw this, but Princeton or the Ivy Leagues in themselves are not necessarily as hospitable to the gospel mm-hmm. as other places. And so when a student has come to faith at an Ivy League institution, they've come to faith because they truly do see Christ as their Lord and Savior. So when they're going into the local church setting, I think that they bring a sense of um of a more mature understanding of having weathered the storms of what it means to actually have your faith to be your own, what it means to have some slight persecution from their professors or from the social context around them. So I think they're going in with a clear mind, sober mindedness, knowing what they're getting themselves into. I think they also um, bring just a a zealousness for the word. Mm -hmm. Like when I sit with my girls in Bible course, um, the way that they just love God is through like actually seeing him in the pages of scripture. I remember one time there was a girl, she was newer to the faith, and um, she was reading through the Gospels with me, and it was the first time that Christ had spoke, and she just started to tear up, because she was the first time she had seen Christ actually use words in the passage, and she was just overwhelmed with joy. Mm. So I think a real heart for the Gospel, a heart for the Word itself, and also a conviction to live it out faithfully is something that they can help the local church. Yeah, and and, and I saw that too, and, and I think the students at Princeton in particular, who really walk with the Lord, who really follow Scripture, who love Jesus, they understand what that's going to mean yeah. from their peers. I remember one student told me um, that for him to articulate what the Bible says about sexuality mm-hmm. would be for him social suicide. Yeah. Um, so they really, I mean, I've never had to deal with that uh, in, in the context where I've generally lived and walked, where for me to say, no, I, I think the Bible defines marriage as being between one man and one woman, mm-hmm. Um, would be social suicide. That would destroy what my peers would think about me. And some of those students coming out of context like that, whether it's at a university or a city setting or a work setting, a work environment, have had to deal with owning their faith in a way that is socially damaging. That can be a great gift to what they bring to a local congregation in the years to come. Yeah. I think one thing that I am... I really embrace and I'm excited about with millennials in the church is, you know, something that they're criticized for is a lack of patience. They have an expectation that, you know, they start a job and they should be the CEO, you know, by week two. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they, they have grown up, uh, you know, in a whole different uh, technological age than what I was raised in or older generations. And so as a result of that, they do kind of have this sense of immediacy. A way that that can be very positively uh, directed is they bring a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. They they want things to change. They want things to change now. So in terms of uh, how that relates to evangelism or uh, discipleship or, um, or or taking care of, of matters related to social justice and the poor, there's an urgency and a passion uh, of you know, things must happen right now kind of attitude that older generations maybe. Uh, maybe too patient and maybe too complacent now. Yep. And that can be helpful even in the details of what's going on in a local church where a lot of times it's a millennial member who's willing to say, why do we do that? You, you know, why do we do that thing that way? And, um, and we, I mean, as, as leaders in the church, better be ready to say, this is why, this is why it's biblical, this is why it's in line with our theological tradition, rather than, well, that's just what we've always done here, and uh, we're never going to change it. And so I, I do think they, that there can be that helpful dynamic of immediacy, like you said, and, uh, hey, let's be biblical, 
Let's be Christ-centered, um, and let's not put tradition ahead of what the Bible actually is teaching here. You cannot, we call it students, have an apathetic faith and think you're going to reach them in a local church. Like, they demand, like you said, authenticity, but they also demand, like, us to push forward and, like, be excited about the things that the Lord is doing. But I think they also demand uh, change, like you said, in the heart, not just social change. But if you are called to stop sinning, I've seen my students be very persistent and very diligent in their sanctification. Um, and that's not always typically true uh, with people who get a little bit more lazy in their faith. So I've always enjoyed seeing them just really wanting to wrestle through things in such a real deep way. Yeah, yeah. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.